Welcome to Harper Academic Calling. Our podcast is designed to give educators, students, as well as every reader, a behind-the-scenes chat with a range of our authors, from well-loved favorites to up-and-coming debut writers, about their books. Harper Academic Calling, Tina Selig. Tina Selig has a PhD in neuroscience from Stanford University Medical School and is currently a professor at Stanford and executive director of the Stanford Technology Ventures Program. Her first two books, What I Wish I Knew When I Was 20 and Ingenious, have inspired students and young entrepreneurs around the world. Creativity Rules, which is now available in paperback and was published in hardcover as Insight Out, combines the lessons of the previous two books and gives your students practical and tangible strategies to unlock their creative potential. So joining us on the phone today, we have Tina Selig, author of Creativity Rules. And Tina, thanks so much for being with us today. It's my pleasure. Thank you so much. All right. uh, So Tina, the first question I want to ask you uh, is about the title of the book, um, which changed from the hardcover. Um, So the word rules, do you consider that a verb or a noun in that title? Well, I guess that's up to you, right? That's a play on words, right? It also was the name of a course I taught uh, at Stanford and continue to teach on creativity. And so it's uh, it's a class I teach on that title, and it's, I have a blog with that title. So it's kind of been a playful play on words that I've used for quite a long time. Okay, so you can't really see it either way. Exactly, both ways. All right, great. Um, so can you tell us a little bit about um, the work you do at Stanford? Sure. So I am so fortunate uh, to get to work with really fabulous colleagues and students and folks around the world, helping them figure out essentially how to bring their dreams to reality. Uh, I run a center called the Stanford Technology Ventures Program, which is focused on helping people see problems as opportunities, to look at how they can leverage resources they have to really make things happen. And so essentially it's, it's entrepreneurship, but we view entrepreneurship through a very large lens. It's not just about starting companies, it's about starting anything. Mm, fantastic. Um, so Creativity Rules, you have two books before that, um, What I Wish I Knew When I Was 20 and Ingenious. How does this book build off of those previous two? Great. I'm so glad you asked. So it, it really didn't start out as being a trilogy, but when I got to the mm-hmm. end of the third book, it was clear that it really is a trilogy. So what I wish I knew when I was 20 uh, initially started out as almost like a letter to my son as he was going off to college. And uh, it really is about having an entrepreneurial mindset. It's about how do you challenge assumptions and break the rules and make your own path. So it's really about the entrepreneurial attitude. The second book, Ingenious, focuses on the skills that are needed, the actual behaviors that are needed in order to come up with really big, bold ideas. And it really is a sort of um, parachuting into my class and looking at all the tools that we teach. And then this third book weaves the two together and looks at how you combine your attitudes and your actions to really make things happen. So then would you, um, so you, you mentioned, you talk about these books as a trilogy. Um, do you say, do you think that you should, if you haven't read any of them, start from the beginning? Can you kind of go out of order? Does that really matter? Yeah, you know, it's a really good question. Uh, I think if you've already read What I Wish I Knew When I Was 20 and Ingenious, I think that Creativity Rules is a great uh, way to bring it all together and create the 
I have a framework that I describe, the invention cycle, mm -hmm. that really shows you how you weave these together. However, they are all designed to stand on their own. So if you wanted to parachute into the final book, that would be perfectly great. And if you then went back and read the others, uh, you wouldn't feel as though you were uh, repeating anything, but you would find that they, they build on each other. Oh, great. That's awesome. Um, so then I know th this invention cycle, um, which is kind of the foundation of creativity rules. Could you give us just a brief overview of what that is? Right. So I realized in teaching classes on creativity and innovation for so many years that one of the biggest problems we have is not having a really clearly defined set of definitions and relationships for that creative process. And I spent a whole year thinking about this and working on this and interviewing tons of people who have gone through the invention processes as entrepreneurs and came up with this framework that essentially takes you from the seeds of an idea all the way through implementation. And so the framework is relatively straightforward. I'm happy to share it with you. Um, essentially, it starts with imagination and essentially the ability to envision things that don't exist and looks at what actually has to happen at that stage to become more imaginative, right? What are the attitudes and actions? Uh, you need to be able to engage in the world and envision what might be different. Mm -hmm. The next stage is creativity, which builds on that. It's essentially applying your imagination to solve a problem. And this is something, again, we, we tend to do, the, we do this all the time, and yet we don't really understand what the underpinnings are. And those underpinnings are motivation and experimentation, right? You need a little bit of motivation to do a little experiment, and you end up being creative. Innovation builds upon creativity, and that is applying creativity to come up with a unique solution. And so this is a really critical point. Creative ideas are new to you. Innovative ideas are new to the world, and by having that distinction, you realize, okay, is this a time when we need a creative solution, or do we really need an innovative solution? And innovation requires two things. It requires focus, really focusing on the problem, and then reframing it, looking at it from a different angle. And then the fourth stage is entrepreneurship, which is applying the innovation to bring the, and those ideas to the world and to scale them, and that requires two things. It requires persistence and inspiring others. Now, the most important piece here is that the end leads back to the beginning. In order to be entrepreneurial, you need to inspire other people's imagination. And that's why this is a big feed-forward loop that leads to tremendous impact on individuals and organizations. So each of these um, components of the invention cycle are very much rooted in a specific action, something you're doing. Um, and one of the things I loved about reading this book is that at the end of the chapter, you actually have these different prompts for students to um, do as they're reading the book. Right. They're exercises, and I, I, I bake them in at the end of every chapter so that mm -hmm. you actually you – know, listen, I, I'm a teacher, and I've become very aware that there is a very big difference between knowledge and skills. This is – yes, there is knowledge here, but the knowledge is pretty straightforward. It's not very complicated. The skills are harder, and let me, let me explain the difference. Uh, in a really simple example, I mean, do you play chess? I do. Okay. Not very uh, well, but... <laughs> okay, good. That's, in fact, that's even better because you know how to set up a chess board. You know how the pieces move, and you know how to play the game. You know the rules, mm -hmm. but you're not a chess master. In order to become a chess master, there's a tremendous amount of skills and strategy that you have to use in order to actually make the game work. And so the same is true with creativity and innovation. The general rules and guidelines and approaches are pretty straightforward, 
but you need to practice them to master them to make them really sing. That's excellent. I think that's a very that's a very good metaphor for um, how to go about that for students. Right, and this is a problem is that people think, for example, you know, oh, well, I understand the rules of baseball. Well, that doesn't make you a baseball player, right? I understand the rules of brainstorming. Well, that doesn't make you a master innovator. And so um, one of the reasons I put the exercises in is to give people the opportunity to start experimenting with these tools themselves to actually see how they work. It's fantastic. Um, so, and, um, you know, like you said, it really gives the students these skills um, to pursue the invention cycle. What guidance would you give to students who are looking for that initial idea, something to apply this whole process to? Oh, I love that question. Um, one of the most profound insights I had in doing this is that people think that you sit down and you sort of envision what you want to happen and, and what you want to do and then you engage in that behavior to, or mm -hmm. to solve that problem. It's actually the other way around. Everything starts with engagement. Um, engagement is the master key that opens up the door to this entire process. Before something is your passion, it's something you know nothing about. And you can start anywhere. You can start, uh, one of the examples I give in the book is if you're a waiter at a restaurant, uh, you, you might, if you're really paying attention, notice uh, that, wow, people are ordering a lot of gluten-free food, or wow, um, we're getting a lot of requests for vegetarian options, or wow, there are some days I get bigger tips than others. Each of these opens the door with your curiosity and motivation to really start solving those problems. You might parlay that experience of being a waiter to ultimately, you know, running a chain of restaurants or being a consulting and customer service. Each of these things would grow out of your experience of being a waiter. But you didn't know that that was your passion or something that you had a particular skill in until you actually started engaging. That's great. So it's really just, you know, discovering finding it in what you're already doing. Exactly. And and that's where the mindset piece is about being engaged in a way with curiosity that it sparks um, the ideas of every single day. We walk through the world and there are hundreds of things that need fixing. I'm sure all you have to do is read the paper to see that. And uh, this is really, really important, is that with that mindset, you really, really can start seeing opportunities everywhere, every day, um, in the things that you're engaged with. Mm -hmm. So there, were, um, there are two interesting things I noticed in the book that you talk about, um, and they seem to contradict each other, but um, so at one point you mentioned that mental rehearsal is a good thing that athletes do to sort of visualize that end goal um, in you know, winning a race or something like that. Um, but then you also talk about how um, if you research shows that visualization of what you hope to accomplish is not enough and it can sometimes backfire. So what's the, what's the difference between that mental rehearsal and visualizing um, success, essentially? Right. So research has shown that you can't just visualize success. That's not going to be helpful. Mm -hmm. um, you need to visualize success, and you also have to visualize the entire process of getting there. Right? So if I'm training for a marathon, I need to understand that, okay, I need to visualize getting up each morning an hour early and training. I need to visualize that I'm going to have to ice my legs you know, when they get uh, injured. I need to visualize the entire process. If you just visualize the end goal, um, you know, you're, you're actually probably doing yourself a disservice if you don't actually understand all the pieces of the puzzle that, that are required. 
Mm. That's good. That's very insightful. Um, yeah. And, and the thing is, it takes some time. I mean, when I write a book, right, mm. people always ask me, you know, what, what, what do you need to do? How do you write a book? Well, honestly, you know, there's an entire process, and you need to visualize the whole process. Okay, who am I going to need to talk to? What's the, who are I'm going to go to for editorial feedback? Uh, how am I going to deal with the feedback when I get it? You know, if I can visualize the entire process, I'm much more likely to actually accomplish that goal. That's great. Um, another thing I loved about reading this book is that um, so often you use metaphors for different things. Um, like you talk about having a mental trash compactor for taking on different tasks. Um, when you talk about being able to manage a busy schedule, you talk about a boat running aground. Mm -hmm. um, so how does this use of metaphor help you in managing your own life? Yeah, I love metaphors. Uh, I, I think that metaphor is one of the most powerful tools. I mean, if you think of most art, uh, poetry, dance, most of that relies on metaphor, comparing something we know to something else uh, that we might be more familiar with. The, the example with the trash compactor was one that I came up with when I realized how do you make a decision about what things you continue working on, what things you give up on, what things you delegate. And so the idea is that we each have our own trash compactor that is filled with the things we're working on. Now, it's not trash that's going to get thrown away, but the metaphor is the idea is that the first time you do something, it fills the entire trash compactor. It takes all of your effort. But after you've done something the first time, you've gained a lot of knowledge and skills and resources. And so the next time you do it, you, you know, squish the trash compactor. You can now do it in a fraction of the time, maybe half the time. You know, let's say I'm running a conference. The first time it's going to be I have to solve every single problem. The second time I've already solved them. So now I have half my trash compactor open. I can do something else. I can add something else to it. So now maybe I add another project or a class I'm teaching or a workshop. Well, again, once I've done those again, I squish the trash compactor. So you can keep adding more things the more experience you have, but at some time you have to take out the trash. And you have uh, several options. One is you can take something out of the trash can and give it to someone else. And then it fills their entire trash can. But you know what you've done? You've now allowed them to scale it. You've now said, this is, I can't do this. I'm going to essentially, instead of my continuing doing it at a fraction of my time, I'm going to give it to someone else and it's going to become their full-time job. So that's a way to scale something. I can say, hey, listen, I'm not going to do it anymore. I'm going to declare victory, take it out of the trash can. Or the third is I can decide I'm going to keep it there. And, for example, my classes that I teach, they basically are anchor tenants in my trash compactor. <laughs> I know it always takes a bunch of time, but they're there, and it's something that I care about, and I'm not going to give it to someone else. So that was just sort of an example of how to use it, use that metaphor. That's great. That's fantastic. Um, so with this book or with any of your other books, what kinds of responses have you gotten from teachers and students um, about how they've been able to apply the lessons in your book to their lives? Yeah, it's really been such a wonderful experience for me that, you know, writing a book is a very solitary experience in many ways. Yes, you go out and interview people and talk to people, but you, know, you write this book in quiet, sitting at your own desk. And when you put it out of the world, you really don't know what sort of response you're going to get. Uh, what I wish I knew when I was 20 has been translated into languages all over the world, and I every single day get letters from readers. Um, mostly it's young people in their 20s and 30s who are saying they were desperately in search of permission 
to do the things they hope to do. And that's really what the book is about, is about giving yourself permission to challenge uh, the status quo and to um, chart your own path to the future. And there are lots of examples that are very compelling about people who have actually done that. The other books have been really well received by both educators and um, industry because lots and lots of companies are looking for frameworks that they can use in their organizations to help them understand and use and, and essentially accelerate the innovation process. And I've been working with Microsoft, for example, and they've, they've rolled out the invention cycle model to all 120 of their innovation centers around the world because they needed to have a framework that they could use to really help people understand this process. That's fantastic. That's so, that's so great to hear. Um, so, Tina, we have one more question for you. Um, this is a question that we ask all of our guests on our podcast. Um, since this is primarily for teachers, educators, and their students, who was your favorite teacher? Oh, my goodness. Well, you know what? <laughs> I can give you two answers. One okay. is I could say my father, right? My father, um, you know, from the time I was a little kid, was always turning everything we did at home into a science experiment. It was just our house became a laboratory of, of thought experiments. You know, he would, uh, um, we'd go to a restaurant, he'd blindfold us and do these blind studies to see if we could tell the difference between black and green olives. Or he'd line us up and take our pulses and ask us, you know, who left the cap off the toothpaste tube, you know, trying to <laughs> figure out who the culprit was. So I grew up in a house where there was a lot of curiosity. Um, I also then think of um, teachers I had when I was in high school and college. But one of the most meaningful ones was when I was in college and uh, I had uh, my first neuroscience class. And in that class, we very quickly got to the frontier, the frontier where we didn't know the answers to the questions. And I was, first time I was invited to think about how might I solve these problems about how the brain worked or what some part of the brain did. And honestly, it sparked my enthusiasm with such energy that uh, that propelled me into becoming a neuroscientist. All right. That's so great. Uh, well, Tina, thank you so much. This has been a delightful conversation to have. Thank you so much. It was my pleasure. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of Harper Academic Calling. Subscribe on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, or your favorite third-party app for more episodes. And be sure to visit us at harperacademic.com for more information about this and other great books.